0: It's nice to be back among you, and it's a gorgeous day. We're going to sing one of the more awesome of all the psalms. It's Psalm 94 in the Reformed Presbyterian Psalter that you've got that looks like this, 94A. Uh, the tune is familiar, I think. Glorious things of thee are spoken is uh, what's usually sung, a uh, um, different set of words. Uh, the melody is written by uh, Franz Joseph Haydn in a string quartet in honor of his emperor. The Nazis stole the melody and made it Deutschland über alles, Germany overall a horrible distortion of um, Haydn's intention. And uh, what we have in the R.P. Psalter is uh, the redemption of the tune, and it serves uh, the living God, God of vengeance. So Jehovah, God of vengeance, shine forth. We've read the psalm responsively. Uh, now we'll sing the first portion of the psalm uh, to a glorious. Uh, tune, and we will not think of the Nazis at all, (laughs) all right, or try not to, okay, don't think of an elephant, okay, (laughs) all right, we'll think of God as the God who does what is just and right in the world, will God judge the world with righteousness, yes, he will, will he judge the church in his mercy, yes, he will, and the psalm speaks of these things. Let's stand and sing these stanzas, Psalm 94a. In the book of Psalms, we're singing.
1: Lord vengeance, O Jehovah, God of vengeance, O shine forth. Rise up, O you judge of nations, render to the proud their worth. O Lord, how long shall the wicked, how long shall the wicked boast? How can the words they pour out, ill men all a taunting host? They shall all across your people, and your heritage shall stress. They kill sojourner and widow, murder they the fatherless. And they say, of all sees not, Jacob's God does not have eyes. Understand, O oh stupid people, when no fools will you be wise. Who the ill-made, does he hear not? What from lies does he not see? Who warned nations, does he smite not? Or men, just knows not he. All the thoughts of men, the Lord sees, knows that heart, a breath of aid. Bless the man whom you chastise, Lord, whom you teach to know your way. Him rest from days of trouble, till the wicked be overthrown. Our Lord will not leave his people, will abandon not his own. When to every verdict given, justice shall come back again. Everyone whose heart is upright will see righteous judgment then. Amen. You may be
0: seated. It is a lovely thing to sing the Psalms, the inspired text of the Bible, hymns are good too, (laughs) yeah, hymns are good too, when they're well written. We heard a lovelier one at the very beginning, uh, that's the Pentecost Aria by J.S. Bach, I don't think it was announced as what it was. But I remember learning that in piano parts, uh, oh, 50 years ago and struggling. (laughs) You got it right today. Yeah. Uh, So, J.S. Bach, the Pentecost aria, uh, title uh, My Heart Ever Faithful. Really quite a lovely uh, aria from the ladies today, so thank you for that. The scripture comes to us now from uh, two New Testament texts, not my usual habit, which is old and new, but we have heard the psalm, and we've heard the psalm twice, Psalm 94. So now we'll be reading from uh, the parable of the sheep and the goats, Matthew 25, uh, 31 through 46. And then from Revelation 20, starting with verse 11, and a bit of chapter 21 up to verse 4. And at the end of the readings, there's a response uh, from you as well printed in the bulletin. Let's then hear the word of the Lord. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all his angels with him, He will sit upon his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate the peoples one from another, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right hand, and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come! Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in, or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? The king will reply, Truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these my brothers, you did for me. And then he will say to those on his left, hungry or thirsty or a stranger and eating clothes or sick or in prison and not help you? He will reply, Truly I tell you, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. Then they will go away to everlasting punishment. But the righteous to everlasting life And now the New Testament reading from the book of Revelation. Revelation 20, verse 11 through one four. Again, hear ye the word of the Lord. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated upon it. The earth and the heavens fled from his presence, and there was no room for them. And I saw the dead, the great, and the small standing before the throne, and the books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them, and each person was judged according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. Anyone whose name was not found written in the Lamb's book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. And then I saw a new heavens and a new earth where the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look! The word of the Lord. Well, we've come with this text to the end of the age. Not the end of the story, but the end of the age. Our verse for the day, the key verse is verse 12. I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to what they had done, as recorded in the books key idea for the day. It's in our text. Final judgment for the world. Yes, it's coming. Final judgment for the world is final salvation for the Christian. And to have one's name in the Lamb's book of life is to be everlastingly safe. And to have one's name not written in the Lamb's book of life is everlasting misery There are two great books of judgment, the book of works and the book of life. And how do we know, how can we know, whether our name is written in the Lamb's book of life? Well, let's explore those themes uh, today. That book of judgment, we find it already written about in the book of Daniel. scene of final judgment, Daniel chapter 7, the the beast, the great empires of the world, the evil empires that are the agents of evil, tyrannical powers, Babylon, Persia, Greece, Rome. Yes, they crawl out of the sea, each under a different beastly form. And in Daniel 7 verse 10, we read this, a throne. And the Ancient of Days seated upon it, verse 9 and verse 10, a river of fire flowing, coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands attended him. Ten thousand times, ten thousand stood before him. And the court was seated and the books were opened. What's recorded in those books? The deeds of the evil empires. They will be judged. And all their dominion given to one like a son of man who comes on the clouds of heaven. That's the Lord Jesus. And that is the scene of his ascension in 30 AD. Seen 500 years before the time by the prophet Daniel. Well, that's the book of judgment. What's the book of life? Seven times we see it in the New Testament. Six of them are the book of Revelation. Paul speaks of it once. Philippians 4, verse 3 He's speaking about his companions in uh, the ministry of the gospel. And he says, I ask you, my true companion, help these women, since they have contended at my side for the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers, whose names are written in the book of life. All right, so Paul and his companions, companions in Philippi, that congregation, um and companions in the ministry, Clement named among them. Revelation 3.5, our first occasion in the book of Revelation. The one who is victorious will be dressed in white, and I will never blot the name of that person from the book of life, but will acknowledge that name before my father and before his angels. Chapter 13, verse 8. This is the chapter about the beast that crawls out of the sea. That final... And terrifying power. Well, not so terrifying. Here it is. Verse 8 All the inhabitants of the earth will worship the beast, all those whose names have not been written in the Lamb's book of life. From before the creation of the world. Chapter 17, verse 8 The beast which you saw once was, now is not, and yet will come up out of the abyss and go to its destruction. The inhabitants of the earth whose names have not been written in the Lamb's book of life from the creation of the world will be astonished when they see the beast, because it once was and now is not, and yet will come. And now our text today, chapter 20, verse 12, I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the the dead were judged, according to what they had done, as recorded in the books. And then verse 15. Anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. One more text now about the new Jerusalem. That future age which is yet to be, in the perfections of glory which shall yet be for those who truly belong to Jesus and love him with sincerity. Chapter 21, verse 27 about that new Jerusalem, nothing impure will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. All right, what's our main idea today? Final judgment for the world? Yes, it's coming. And that day is final salvation for the Christian. And to have one's name in the Lamb's book of life is to be everlastingly safe, and not to have one's name in the Lamb's book of life is to be, well, within this life, utterly in danger, and in the life of the world to come, in misery. There are two libraries of final judgment, the books of works and the book of life. The library of the world's misdeeds is vast and labyrinthine. The other library has but one book. I think you'll like this book. Those who trust in Jesus, yes, their names are in it. Now that message would be small comfort if we could not know now if our names were written in the book of life. There is a way to know now. There is only one way to know now, and that way is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Do you believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ? Do you trust Jesus Christ to be your faithful Savior? If the answer truly from the heart is yes, then of course the only way your heart could have said that is as Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 12, by the Holy Spirit. No one says Jesus is Lord except by the Spirit of God. And to say that confession from the heart, yes, I believe in Jesus, to say that from the heart can only happen by the grace of heaven. And if it's done by the grace of heaven, then of course your name is written in the book of life. There's no way to look into the back door of God's mind to see whether your name is written. No, 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 no. There's no back door accessible to you. There's only the front door. And what's the front door? It's the gospel of Jesus. The thing that is preached openly to all the world. The thing that's been preached since uh, the days of Jesus and in its Old Testament form preached since the foundation of the world. And that is trust in Jesus Christ. All right, in the Old Testament, by way of foreshadowings, yes. But don't forget Jesus' words—the opening words of his mission in the Gospel of Mark, Mark chapter one, verse fifteen. One of the most important sentences ever written in the history of the world. Here's what Jesus says when he comes preaching into the world: "The time has come. What time? The time of redemption. The time has come. The kingdom of God is near." Repent and believe the good news. That's the front door. There is no back door into the mind of God to see these things. Speculations abound in the literature of uh, bad theology. There is no back door to that way. There's only the front door, which is the gospel. Do I trust Jesus Christ to be my faithful Savior? If truly I do, then, of course, I've only done so by the grace of heaven. And if I've done so by the grace of heaven, my name is written in the right book. And here's the mystery. All right, a mystery of predestination from all eternity. The counsels of the triune God, which are beyond all of our fathoming, that's in eternity. We have no access to that except as revealed in Scripture. But within history, within time, within our life, it's the gospel which goes out to the world and says, Repent and believe. And that gospel is to be preached by the church everywhere and to all. And people believe. And, God willing, we have believed. And, God willing, all in this room have believed, or shall. And, if so, our names are written in the right book. Yeah, the right book. And so we have a story here of universal judgment. Two, two books, two sets of books, if you will. Two, two libraries, if you will. The books of the deeds of the world without God and the book of the Lamb. The book of life. The judgment is universal. Notice the text says that all were gathered before that great, white, and shining throne, both great and small. Why is universal judgment necessary? We'll look at that idea. Why is universal judgment good? We'll look at that idea too. Even the damned will be glad in a way for this universal judgment. Why? We'll look at that question. And why should believers rejoice in every way in regard to this universal judgment? Judgment sounds bad, right? Yeah, it sounds bad. You go to the court, you're in the dock. <laughs> yeah, judgment is always is scary. But what if tyranny and murderous violence never found their comeuppance? What if evil went forever unrequited? Yeah, imagine that world. That's not a world that you want. Now, there was a philosopher who was uh, rather far from the kingdom of God but had some right ideas. His name was Immanuel Kant. In class, we joke that he is I, Kant. Okay, Immanuel Kant, his initial. Around 1800, writes this stuff. And um, a German language philosopher, one of the founding figures in philosophical modernism. And uh, unlike many of Kant's intellectual children, uh, Kant actually believed in... God. Well, a vague kind of God, recognizably divine, but uh, not especially um, redemptive. Kant tried to assassinate all the old classic arguments for God's existence, but there was one argument that he could not kill. In fact, he lent support to it and gave it even more development. He did it this way. Here's the argument. It's called the moral argument for God's existence. We human beings, he says, have a universal imperative, a sense that there is something called duty, a sense of ought. It presses upon us all, says Kant. It impresses itself upon us all, and the only way to account for such a universal sense of duty is God. There must be a God. Otherwise, we have no such sense throughout the human race, Okay, check the various cultures of the world, wherever they are, whatever they may be. Whatever their religions, or their ideologies, or their superstitions. And there is the sense that there is a judgment for those who do wrong. How do we account for this in the universality of of the human race? God says, only by the fact of God. All right, do away with God in later philosophy, and some of them did, or tried to, I should say. We'll go to the University of Chicago and to a recent famous philosopher there, Richard Rorty. And here's an infamous paragraph. You want to hear the paragraph, one of the worst paragraphs in modern philosophy, written about 30 years ago? Here's the paragraph, it's infamous. Quote, When the secret police come, when the torturers violate the innocent, there is nothing to be said to them of the form that there is something within you which you are betraying. Though you embody the practices of a totalitarian society that will endure forever, there is something beyond these practices which condemns you. What's Rorty say? No, there's nothing that actually says that. Nothing. And what is Rorty's answer then to tyranny? Here it is. Quote, This is not how we do things in a civilized West. What kind of answer is that? And so his fellow philosophers were scandalized by it. And Rorty's essay is now called, quote, notorious. Yeah, right. That's, That's a good word for it, notorious. Why? Because if there is no justice... Why does the whole race feel outrage at crimes that we've sung about in Psalm 94 where they murder the innocent and the widow and the orphan and the stranger within your gates? Our outrage at Rorty is right. Rorty's paragraph is actually an excellent argument for the opposite. And so Kant was partly right. Let's put it better. We're made in the image of God. God. Right? That's not something we can lose. We can distort it. We can twist it. We can break it a bit. We cannot destroy it. It's what we are. We're made in that image and likeness. It is inescapable. And because God is the ultimate definition of virtue, we bear some mark of that definition ourselves and must. The image of God cannot live in the pretense that there is no justice. Yeah, imagine again that world in which there is no justice, not ever, 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 ever. Doesn't your mind rebel? Yeah, what if the Nazis never faced a judgment? I'll make this point. Regarding that universal judgment, even the wicked will want it. And why will the wicked want it? Because sometimes even the wicked do things that are partly right. And they will want to be vindicated for those things that they have done that are partly right. Sometimes the victimizers are also victims. And they will want their victimhood to be addressed at that great white and shining throne. St. Paul says it this way in Romans 2. Their conscience is sometimes excusing them... Sometimes accusing them on that day. All right, so no one is ever totally on the wrong side. We're prevented from that by being the image and likeness of God. Okay, we distort it. We twist it. It's like going to the amusement park and looking at yourself at those funny mirrors, you know, and it's not quite you. A distortion of the image of yourself in the funny mirror distortion of the image of God in our character, our soul. But something of the image is still there. Even the wicked will want it for the partial vindication that God will, dare I say it this way, will owe them, That is, that justice will owe them. And for for the righteous, that is for the Christians, for those who repent and believe, what is it for the Christian then? This final judgment is our vindication that is it's god's declaration to all the world and to those who despise the church of jesus it's god's declaration that that the church is in the right that the people of god are beloved and that they are sanctified truly and wear the white robes of christ's righteousness and whatever their faults which are many yeah don't forget which are many Those faults are washed away in the blood of the Lamb. And that book of life is the book of the Lamb. The book of the Lamb. And so, yes, the believer is judged. The text tells us that everyone is judged by their works. Now, wait a minute. My works are mixed. So are yours, (laughs) Joe. I don't know you at all. (laughs) But I know your works are mixed. Okay, driving here this morning, I was in a bit of a haste. And I pulled out of my driveway down the alley and turned onto 36th Street. And then there was Route 18 in front of me, and I had a stop sign. And I was in a bit of a haste. And I looked to the left. I looked to the right. I looked to the right again, and then I made my turn. There was a guy coming from the left, <laughs> a little closer than uh, than it should have been. And it was my fault, and I hadn't loved my neighbor enough in that moment of haste. All right, he missed me, I missed him. Nobody really swerved, but it was too close for comfort. And I wondered if that fellow recognized me. (laughs) I hope he didn't. (laughs) All right, but what happened in that moment about two hours ago? I had failed to love my neighbor. Yeah, I had failed to love my neighbor as myself. It's bothered me for the last two hours. My father taught me, okay, you want to make that turn? Look left, look right, you know. Look, look, look twice. Look left before you make the turn. Make sure the last place you look is left, and you've looked twice. And that was 50 years ago for that lesson. And I nearly always do it. But not this morning. I didn't love my neighbor well enough. All right, so Romans 2 applies to the Christian, too. Their conscience sometimes excusing them, sometimes accusing them on that day. And we can't forget what Paul says later, a chapter later in Romans, chapter 3, verse 23, a text often misquoted. Here's the right quote. For all have sinned. You know the text. Maybe you do. For all have sinned. Okay, there's our past. And... Fall short. There is our present. All have sinned and fall short. All right, so the believer, yes, is judged by works, but our good works receive their reward. And Jesus says in Matthew 25, Come, ye blessed of my Father, enter the kingdom that was prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you fed me. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. And likewise, in that chapter, a different parable, the parable of the talents. What does Jesus say to those who invested those bricks of gold that the ancients called a talent? Yeah, 75 pounds of gold in one of those bricks. A talent is a brick, a brick of precious metal. What does the master say? Well done, good and faithful servant. Okay, you've earned five talents. I give you five cities. All right, now these works that are rewarded are not really merit, because each work by itself is certainly corruptible and corrupted and corrupt. We never act purely for the glory of God. That's not yet true within our mortal life. There is no moment yet when you have loved God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. All right, God is, God is improving us in Christ. We are being sanctified, but it's a lifelong journey to that blessed goal And none of us has yet arrived within that blessedness of the divine perfection that is yet to be. We are pilgrims on a hard road, and we sometimes take the wrong turn, or sometimes fail to look to the left twice. All right. We have never yet acted purely for the glory of God, our works are mixed. But nonetheless, the Christian's works are done in Christ. And whatever is faulty, Jesus wipes away by his cross and resurrection. And whatever is not faulty is, of course, his gift. The fruit of the Spirit, grown by the Holy Spirit. And such things abound then to the glory of God. And Christ purifies us from all sin, And in that act of faith that we exercise with repentance, what does God do? He declares us just. Paul says it this way, that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. What is justification by faith that was preached so well by Paul and, and by Augustine? Not quite so well, and by Luther rather well. What is this thing called justification by faith? It's that final judgment's decree has already been passed in our case. The decree of final judgment, the last day, that great and glorious, white and shining throne, the decree that is will be decreed upon that throne is already decreed for us in Christ. And what is the decree? that we are righteous by faith, that sins are are washed away, and that we stand in the very virtue and justice of Jesus, that God might both be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Justification by faith is in the Christian's past. It defines the rest of our life. And it is impossible that the decree at that great white throne on the last day of our mortal age and the beginning of all the ages that are yet to come, it is impossible that the decree of that great white throne should be in any wise different than the decree already passed in our case when we declared from the heart, I believe in Jesus. Such persons have their names written in the book of life from all eternity. And to believe in Jesus is to be everlastingly safe. To have your name written in the book of life is to be everlastingly safe. Now there are many more issues in the text, and on my next visit, if God spares us all, I hope to return to the text, especially chapter 21, the new heavens, the new earth, the sea. There are many things there to pursue. Um, I cannot pursue them all today. But I want to tell a story now. And the story pertains to a man whose name you may never have heard of in all your life, Guido de Bray. Uh, Guido, um, born in the 16th century student of John Calvin in that other Geneva, not the one 40 miles down, uh, down south of it, where I teach. Okay, the one across the water. Uh, okay, that one. Yeah, a student at that Geneva in the 1550s, uh, a friend of John Calvin, his teacher. Guido de Bray was from what is now Belgium. And uh, those Belgian territories didn't yet have that name, but they were dominated by the Spanish Empire. Their, their, their sovereign was Philip II, who was the son of Charles V, Luther's emperor. Yeah, the one who wanted Luther dead so ardently. All right, so his son is on the throne in Spain, and Spain actually controls a vast amount of Western Europe, including uh, what is now Holland and Belgium. Yeah, he controlled the, the, the New World, too, the Spanish New World, Mexico. The Caribbean, he ruled a vast, vast territory. He tried to get England too, but Elizabeth wouldn't marry him. And then he fought a war against her and lost the Spanish Armada. Yeah, that's the fellow. A fellow who hated Protestantism probably more than anything else he hated in all of life. And he has a duke and a duchess in charge of those Belgian territories. They're his kinfolk. And they have a command to wipe out, to exterminate these upstart Protestants. Do not let them live. So, Guido de, Guido de Bray is from that yeah, from that world in which his Protestant and Reformed faith is despised by those who rule the kingdoms of the world. He wrote a great confession of faith. It's called the Belgic Confession. Some of you may have heard of that. It's now a part of the three forms of unity, which are the standard, like our Westminster standards for Presbyterianism, they are the standards for continental Reformed churches, like the Dutch Reformed churches, or or the uh, the United Reformed churches, etc. And um, it's the only major confession written by only a single fellow. All right, so the Belgic Confession, Guido de Bray, 1559. When he finished his 30 or 40-page text, he wrote it up in a scroll tied it with a string, tied a rock to it, went in the dead of night to the palace of the Duchess and tossed it over the wall in hopes that the soldiers would take it to the Duchess. And she would read it and know that these these you know, Calvinist Protestants weren't dangerous to her. If she, only she would let them live, you know, they'd be good citizens. Look at what they believe. We don't know that she ever read it or even knew of it. It so happens, though, that um, the last chapter is actually an exposition of our text. Yeah, Revelation 20, verse 11 and following is expounded in the last page of the Belgic Confession. Here's what he says. When the time appointed by the Lord, which is unknown to all creatures, has come, and the number of the elect complete, that our Lord Jesus Christ will come from heaven bodily and visibly, as he ascended with great glory and majesty, declare himself judge of the living and the dead, burning this old world with flame and fire to cleanse it. And then all people will personally appear before this great judge, both men and women and children, that have been from the beginning of the world to the end thereof, being summoned by the voice of the archangel, by the sound of the trumpet of God, For all the dead shall be raised out of the earth, and their souls joined and united with their proper bodies in which they formerly lived. As for those who shall then be living, they shall not die as the others, but be changed in the twinkling of an eye, and from corruptible become incorruptible. Then the books, that is to say, the consciences, shall be opened and the dead judged according to what they have done in this world, whether it be good or evil. Nay, all people shall give an account of every idle word they have spoken, which the world only counts amusement and jest. And then the secrets and hypocrisies of men shall be disclosed and laid open before all. And therefore the consideration of this judgment is justly terrible and dreadful to the wicked and the ungodly, but most desirable and comfortable to the righteous and the elect. Because then their full deliverance shall be perfected, and there they shall receive the fruits of their labor and trouble which they have borne. Their innocence shall be known to all, and they shall see the terrible vengeance which God shall execute on the wicked, who most cruelly persecuted, oppressed, and tormented them in this world and who shall be convicted by the testimony of their own consciences, and being made immortal, shall be tormented in that everlasting fire which is prepared for the devil and his angels. And on the contrary, the faithful and the elect shall be crowned with glory and honor, and the Son of God will confess their names before God his Father and his elect angels, and all tears shall be wiped from their eyes, And their cause, which is now condemned by many judges and magistrates as heretical and impious, will then be known to be the cause of the Son of God himself. And for a gracious reward, the Lord will cause them to possess such a glory as never entered into the heart of man to conceive. Therefore we await that great day with a most ardent desire, to the end that we may fully enjoy the promises of God in Jesus Christ, our Lord. The text ends with these five words, six words, Amen. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. Those are the last words of the book of Revelation. Now, Guido de Bray, he reigns with Christ now, among those martyrs that we've read of so often within this great book of Revelation. He was captured in 1567 by those Spanish authorities, tried by the Spanish Inquisition, condemned to death as a heretic. And as he was on the scaffold with the noose around his neck, about to be hanged, standing on a stool, he was permitted one last address. A vast crowd had gathered to witness the execution. Some in the crowd were mockers and scorners and persecutors. Others in the crowd were his disciples and friends and those who had heard him preach the gospel so faithfully. Guido de Bray began to preach. Yeah, noose around his neck, standing on a stool beneath the gibbet and after a while the executioner got so impatient with the length of the sermon that he kicked the stool out from beneath the man's feet and the sentences of the gospel were cut short by a cruel and unjust execution his final words were of the gospel mid-sentence cut short by the hangman's rope we saw in Revelation 6 that the martyrs were waiting under the altar of incense and given white robes and told to wait a little while longer until the full number of those who would be beheaded because of the testimony of Jesus would, would, would come into that heavenly place of waiting. We're told in Revelation 20, the opening, uh, sorry, the second paragraph of that text, that these who'd been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. And we've seen that that 1,000 years is actually the present time. That is the time of the reign of King Jesus from heaven over all earth and heaven. The time of his ascension, told of in Revelation 12. The time of his ascension until the time of his second coming. The thousand years, a symbolic number for the fullness of time until the final judgment of the world and the final salvation of God's people. What is Guido de Bray doing now? He is reigning with Christ. What do the dead in Christ do now? They reign in Christ. If the Lord tarries, what shall we do until that last and great day? We shall reign with Christ. And for all who have believed in this gospel, we can know now, yes, now, that our names are truly written in the Lamb's Book of Life. One of those other documents in those, uh, that uh, the, the threefold unity of the Reformed Churches of the Continent is called the Heidelberg Catechism, written in 1563. Its opening question is justly famous. Maybe you've heard it before. Christian, what is your only comfort in life and in death? I love the question. (laughs) I love the answer more. Christian, what is your only comfort in life and in death? Answer, that I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior Jesus Christ, who has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He watches over me in such a way That not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. I'm always a bit amused by that one. Okay, that line. Uh, In fact, all things must work together for my salvation. Because I belong to him, Christ, by his Holy Spirit, assures me of everlasting life. And makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. The gospel is wonderful. There is no better news in all the world than the gospel of Jesus. We're going to sing of it now. The hymn comes to us from, uh, well, let's see, 150 years ago nearly. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. Once there was a church service I heard about where the printer hadn't quite done their work entirely. And the hymn was entitled, My Hope is Built on Nothing. <laughs> I never like putting it in the bulletin uh, uh, with the actual title, My Hope is Built on Nothing Less. I always like to fill out the sentence, but it makes a bit a bit long for the bulletin. All right, what's the whole sentence? My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. That's the truth. Our hope is not built on nothing. Yeah, the world might have that kind of hope. My hope is built on nothing less, say it with me, than Jesus' blood and righteousness. Let us join together in these stanzas and sing of the glory of the gospel.